right, it's going to take me a long time to get you folks reeled in. But uh, come on back. And um, open your Bibles, would you please? Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Well, we're uh, exploring uh, 2 Corinthians, having already gone through 1 Corinthians. And, excuse me, First Corinthians is written to the church that Paul built over an 18-month span on one of his missionary journeys, and um, he had written several letters, only a couple got through. We have them here in the Bible. And he'd visited at least one time, just sort of given some bad news, as, or some shocking news, I guess, or some rebuking news is maybe a better way of saying it, uh, because... There were lots of problems in the Corinthian church. It was as it was set in a very evil city on a little four-mile landmass connecting two uh, bodies of water. And um, uh, it was a port city, and uh, all that came around or along with, uh, you know, the port cities and uh, the sailors and the people who would be in and out of the city and the... uh, idol worship that took place, and the temple worship that took place, which included prostitution as worship. So this was a very evil city, and in 1 Corinthians, he writes a letter that's very, you know, it's harsh, it's rebuking, but he, but he has to do it. I mean, and we studied last time, I mean, in 1 Corinthians, there was a stepson that was having an ongoing physical and romantic relationship with his stepmom. And Paul certainly was saying, I mean, that's sin and you should call it out. But, and he was shocked by that behavior, but what was really shocking was that the church didn't do anything about it. Didn't talk about it, just sort of glossed over it. And there are several things. Uh, <clears throat> the brothers and sisters were suing one another. The brothers and sisters were fighting over debatable issues and splitting over it. They had favorite pastors, and they were splitting over that and all those sorts of things. And when we pick up 2 Corinthians, I mean, we're beyond that, and you can see that Paul didn't revel in having to write that first letter. I mean, he loved these people. He had to do it. He knew that. But he loved the people, and that's where the first letter was coming from. He was rebuking them out of love. And Americans sort of have a hard time facing that because we don't you know, want anybody to criticize us in any way. That's not how we are supposed to live. We're our individual little kingdoms. If we don't hurt you, you shouldn't hurt us. But, and, and if I'm not hurting you, well, but see, when you get in a church, it's a different thing, the body of Christ. When you get in the body of Christ, it's a different thing. And Paul says, when there's sin in the camp, we must address it. And repentance and returning to God is the answer. And he was so happy uh, last time when he learned that that had happened. And we saw how Paul, even though he had to rebuke, trusted the Lord to do the mighty work of repairing and orchestrating what was happening to bring it around for his good and his glory. In other words, he gave the Lord space to work. He wasn't a helicopter parent. Now, that's funny. But anyway, but you know what I mean. I mean, he he is a helicopter parent because he's sovereign and he's good and he knows all things. But Sometimes he works in a little different time scale or time frame than you and I want him to, or especially when it comes to other people who are bothering us or not doing what we want them to do. And here Paul shows us that he gave people room 
or he gave God room to breathe. Now, listen, I irritated some folks last week, especially you planners. But I wasn't saying planning's bad. In fact, Paul doesn't say that. Paul planned, but he wasn't making an idol out of his plan. And that's the point. Of course you need to plan. We plan. We had a planning meeting this week. I didn't enjoy it, but we had it. I mean, right? We're to set the vision and to lead and to guide. And so there is a plan, but if you don't allow the Holy Spirit to change your plans, you're making an idol out of your plan. And so we see that last week. And what I wanted to share again is 2 Corinthians is sort of more uh, of uh, Paul's sort of, not really, but stream of consciousness more. He's writing things down about, uh, uh, you know, the praises that he feels. And uh, he, although he starts with an accusation that's against him, in chapter 2 he just sort of, for five or so chapters, sort of goes out of that and just tells us these glorious doctrines available to us because of the work of Jesus. And the the issue in the first part of the chapter was, hey man, you told us you were going to come here and you're not a man of your word. And that's what the Corinthians were saying. You indicated you'd be by, you'd stop by to visit us again. And wow, look at you. We can't trust you. And that's where we got into all that planning versus non-planning Holy Spirit stuff, right? And What's really great is we ended in this is that despite whatever's going on, Paul told us that we are being led in triumph. Sometimes when you listen to the church body, it's as if we've been beaten and are defeated. And the great part about what we read last week is that We are operating always as born-again, spirit-filled Christians, counting on the finished work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. We're operating out of victory. We're not trying to obtain victory. What, What do I mean? Let's just read this and we'll go on into three. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. And this is evoking the picture of the Roman generals who would parade their captives through the city and they would swing the censers with all of the aroma and the sons of the general would be behind his chariot and he leads us in triumph in Christ and through us, which really is one of the most astounding verses of the Bible. (laughs) Wait a minute. You mean our walk with the Lord is going to impact people who don't believe? I'm not sure if I'm in charge, I would have done that. But in his infinite wisdom and goodness and mercy and grace, he says he leads, uh, he leads us in triumph and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death, leading to death. You see, that's life outside of Christ. It's death. It's spiritual death. But to the other, the aroma of of life leading to life. That's life in Christ. Life in Christ is you give up your life for his and you gain life. It's incredible. You get eternal life. And who is sufficient for these things? Who, who is sufficient first to receive it? And also, who is sufficient to lead people and teach them about these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Now watch this. Just go right into chapter 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? In other words, he's taking on the theme that we're insufficient. And praise the Lord that he does. 
You see, what happens in the Old Covenant is we start to think we're sufficient. I can do it. I can meet up. I can live to the standard all the time. And I'm going to just set my will and my determination and just do it. And we begin to think that we are sufficient in ourselves. And I see it all the time, right? You think it sometimes. I think it sometimes. And here's what I do. I mean, or you, you do, we do together. Oh my gosh, I've been to 50 Bible studies this year and Jan, 48. I'm killing her. We think these things. I've been to the prayer meeting more than you have. I serve more than you do. I give more than you do. I'm at homeless more than you are. And somehow we believe that if we do, 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 we meet up and, and, and uh, we're sufficient of ourselves. We love our fleshly nature. You can read about it in Romans chapter 7. Our fleshly nature loves to compete. I better watch that. But anyway, we love to compete, even in the church. I've done more than you. I've given more than you, etc. Or do we need? Do we begin again to commend ourselves? And Paul was real about this. He said, there's this temptation as you're leading people and uh, guiding people or sharing with people that you're the one that makes it happen. Or do we need, watch this, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? And see, that is very typical in the ancient world. If I was going to go meet somebody, I needed a letter of commendation to get the introduction. You can read about it. There's others in Romans 16... Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, we'll see it again. And you, you see letters of commendation. And here he's saying, but do you know, do we need, as some others, epistles, letters of commendation to you or letters of commendations from you? So when we walk around, are we valuing or, or, or gaining our sense of worth by what people are saying about us? He says, Man, if you, you fall into that trap, think about what he's saying right here. If I would fall into that trap, Paul says, the things you're saying about me would fracture me, not you, but the Corinthians. The things that the Corinthians were saying about Paul would fracture him and defeat him, and he couldn't go on. Because they certainly, at this point in time, weren't going to give a letter of commendation. They were against him, not against him, but, you know, bicker, you know in the back, behind his back, talking, backbiting. Come on, he doesn't even keep his word. And so do we need as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendations from you? Watch this. He's, he's, he doesn't say no here, but he says, no, we don't need that stuff. Here's what the proof of our ministry, that God's working in our ministry. Here's what he says. The proof that God's working in our ministry, he says, is you, is the church, are the people. It's not whether we have a you know, 10,000 square foot building with a rock wall and an unbelievable band with worship leaders with you know, jeans got holes in them and you know, whatever it is and you know, the cool mohawk hair or whatever and you know, jean jackets or leather jackets and tattoos and stuff, nothing against tattoos. But you know what I'm saying. I mean, it's just not about the image. It's, it's the people and what's happening in their hearts. It's what's happening in their hearts. It's what the Lord's doing inside of them. And then as they are being impacted by the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going out and impacting a culture. And Paul's saying, that's our letter. We don't need some letter from you or from anybody else telling us who we are because we're so grounded and rooted in Jesus Christ. We're just satisfied that you're doing well. Can you imagine saying that to people who are backbiting you? And he loves them, and he says, You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not 
on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is of the heart. Now listen, we went through the old covenant just when we were doing communion. A covenant, the covenant that God gives, the old and the new, is the relationship by which the people were going to live and relate to him. Israel, the Jews, and the old covenant, and now this new covenant, right, that's signed and sealed in his blood, his death and resurrection, that covenant, that's a covenant that's the means of which new covenant people live is not commandments, it's the Spirit of God. You catching that? So he's saying people who live according to the Spirit of God, they're an open letter Watch this. This is you. If you, you say to yourself, well, I don't know if I really have a ministry. I don't even know if I'm effective. I don't know what I should be doing. You know what Paul's telling you here? When you walk according to the Spirit, you're doing it. <laughs> whatever it is, I don't know whatever it is. You're being a mechanic. You're being a, a school teacher. You're a, a stay-at-home mom that uh, you know, is ministering to the children and sharing with all the people Wherever they go and to all the places they go, like Starbucks and stuff like that, and that's a joke. But anyway, uh, wherever, right? Or you're a lawyer or you're a doctor. Whatever it is, you're ministering. You're, you're, your whole life is an open letter to the world. I'm a follower of Jesus. I live according to the Spirit. And he says, Paul says, doesn't he, I, I don't need letters of commendation. I just want people to look at you. That's what I want. It's the heart of a pastor. It's an epistle of Christ, and it's written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. You see this? The church is just so much different than any social club. We're guided and directed by the Holy Spirit of the living God. And that Spirit's not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. And you probably know this, but see, there's this old covenant in the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament, an idea of a new covenant springs forth, and we just went through it in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah's prophecies during, you know, warning the people about what's happening and the judgment that's coming to Judah, there's this prophecy that at some point in some day, the law of God won't be written on tablets, dead, stone, cold, stark, generic, hard tablets. But the, the law of God is going to be written on the hearts of the people, fleshly, warm, inside, not external, internal. And so you see it right there in Jeremiah 31, 31. And today in 1 Corinthians 11, I read it during communion, and you could read about it also when Jesus has the Last Supper in Luke 22. He puts the new covenant into practice. Jesus puts it into practice. You see that? And so when you read down here, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is of the heart, guess what Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has happened or is saying? Prophecies being fulfilled, folks. Just as God said through Jeremiah the prophet. How cool is that? So he keeps going on, and he says, and we have such trust through Christ towards God. What a beautiful thing to say. What a beautiful thing to say. We trust him more and more as we live this life by the Spirit, don't we? We, we, we know that we're insufficient of ourselves, so we need the Holy Spirit in our lives and we keep coming to the Lord in communion and prayer. We see his truth in the word. And the Lord does something in our hearts. And we go out and serve and love. And then we are praying and asking the Lord to come into our needs and do something about what's happening in our lives to make us more Christ-like. And then all of a sudden, prayers come answered. Maybe not the way you wanted it, 
But you look back over time and you go, whoa, I can't believe he did that and that. I was praying for this, but he did something so much better. <laughs> and and you, you get to that place, don't you, with the Lord where you say this, just like you sort of say with your parents, wow, they knew the right thing all along. I wanted to do this. They told me yes or no or maybe or whatever it was with our parents, and we look back over and we go, wow, they had that pegged. They knew it. And that's the way we get with the Lord. And we see that in every circumstance, no offense, parents, and I'm one of them, but he knows better than we do, even about our kids and about our lives as parents, and everything he does, every single thing, out of it he works for the good. Every circumstance of your life, you say, well, I had some pretty tough circumstances. I'm not saying God is up there clicking his heels happy about the circumstance, but out of the circumstance, in the circumstance, he works it all out in your life for his glory and your good. And it's every circumstance. So that you get to the point, you can say, well, you know... I'm in this tough situation. People are misunderstanding me, like Paul. They're even gossiping about me. But I have trust through Christ towards God. And the more I trust him, the more peace I have. And the more I keep my mind stayed on him, the more peace I have. And the more I let him into my insecurities and hurts and fears and struggles, the more he takes it and makes something beautiful. And then I trust him even more. And it just, he builds it. To the point that I can say, like Paul, wow, Paul, or wow, Lord, we have so much trust through, uh, in you through Jesus Christ, your son. Wow. And he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. And I just want you to know that it's, this, is, this is how... We are to live as people who are counting on the finished work of Christ. The people under the old covenant said, we got to do. The people under the new covenant say, we get to do because he's already accomplished all of it. I never have to worry if I'm ever going to measure up. And now he gives me the resource and the strength to do it. In other words, what you're reading right here is the way in which New Covenant believers live. We recognize. Have you been given a great intellect? We say, my goodness, Lord, not me, but you've given that to me to be a steward for your glory and man's good, to serve people and to love you. It's all from you, Lord. Or maybe you haven't given me a great intellect, but boy, you've given me this tenacity to pray. And I'm bringing people to the throne. Thank you, Lord. Whatever it is you have for me, that's so, I'm so thankful because you've given me the ability and resource to actually carry it out. We, Paul recognized that he was insufficient of himself. Think about it. He was one of the smartest men in the world. <laughs> He'd been trained under the greatest teachers of the law. He was like going to the, the Wittenberg of colleges, you know. That's where I went to school, or Harvard, or wherever. You get it? And he came to the place where he recognized that if it wasn't for God's glory, it just wasn't eternal. So he says, not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think any, uh, of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient, watch, as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, let's look at this. I just want you to see this. The Lord's new covenant, it's a covenant of grace and of the Spirit. You catch that? I want you to know this if you are here and you have never really checked into the claims of Christ or 
you just don't really go to church, that's okay. We're, we're so glad you're here and you're welcome here. But he, I want you to know this, that the Bible says that people need real spiritual life and you don't have it on your own. And we need it at a certain point in time. We surrender our lives to Christ and we need him to come into our life. But then the whole of our life as Christians, we continually keep needing spiritual life or life of the spirit listen to this in ephesians 2 and you that's everybody sitting in here by the way you we us we either it doesn't say this but it says we're we're dead in our trespasses and sins if you're outside of christ you're dead in your trespasses and sins you're dead and i was once dead and you all uh, if you've you know, if you're a spirit-filled Christian, you were once dead, so I'm not picking on you if you're sitting here and you're not counting in Jesus. But the Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sin in which we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works, here's what he calls us outside of Christ, the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of this flesh and were by nature children of wrath. For those who are outside of Christ, and I at one point in my life, as long as many of you were in this position, were by nature children of wrath. I just read it from the Bible. Oh, but he keeps going on in Ephesians 2. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together, here's the key, watch, made us alive together spiritually with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You've just heard the new covenant. That's new covenant living. So here the Bible tells us that we need the Spirit and we know from, we need the Holy Spirit to come into our life. We need to count on Jesus Christ to take us from the kingdom of disobedience to the kingdom of love and his kingdom, and we do it by surrendering our life to Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes in, then we continually rely upon him as we live this life. The letter, folks, the letter of the law, the Old Testament, kills. But the Spirit gives life. If you're still trying to measure up by conduct, you've placed yourself under the law and you ain't going to make it. But none of us would make it. But if you're relying upon anything that Jesus has already accomplished, you're living in grace and you have spiritual life. What a beautiful message. Jesus said this, didn't he? I have come that they may have life and that they have, have it more abundantly or may have it more abundantly. That's in John 10. And Jesus said, if we continually looked at him for everything we need spiritually, like spiritual food, everything would, good be, would be good. And Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life in John chapter 6. You get that? Interesting stuff. And, and, and transforming stuff. These are the things of the heart of the gospel. Well, watch this. Paul now goes on and he has a section here where he compares and contrasts the old covenant to the new covenant. You ever said to yourself, why can't I change? Hmm. Well, listen to this. Maybe, maybe you're insecure, or maybe you're fearful, or maybe you're anxious, or maybe you're addicted, or maybe you're, I don't know, angry, or maybe you're mean, or maybe, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Maybe it's any of those. This is your chapter. <laughs> Watch this. If the ministry of death, written engraved on stones, was glorious so that the children 
could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. Do you know what he's referring to here? Well, I read a little bit uh, uh, to it or uh, of it to you at the beginning here, back in Exodus 24. You could go there and see in 29 through 35, Moses would go in and speak to the Lord. I want you to know this. You can go read it. I think it's in 34, 34 maybe, or 24, 34. But anyway, it's in one of those chapters. When he went in, guess what Moses would do with this veil that he would wear over his face when he came back down? He would take it off. Moses, one person, would go in and speak to the Lord. He'd take off the veil. And what would happen is he'd sort of glow. He had a radiance. He would he'd seen the glory in some way. And I'll leave the other theological things to you for another day. But as he was coming down the mountain, apparently, you know, he's still shining. And most people say, well, he didn't want the shining, glowing to impact the people. Well, it sort of says that in Exodus. But right here, it tells us that's not really what was going on. He put the veil back on because he didn't want anybody else to know that the glory of God was fading away. Are you catching that? That's what it says in Exodus. And you need to know that story because that's what he's referring to. And he says that that has some glory, but it fades away. And he calls the Old Testament, or excuse me, the Old Covenant, doesn't he? He calls it something. He calls it the ministry of death. Why do you think he calls it the ministry of death? And some people get up and say, well, you know, the Old Covenant's bad and all that sort of thing. Well, the Bible doesn't say the Old Covenant's bad. The Bible says it's holy and good. But what does the Old Covenant do? It slays us. It tells us that we're a sinner because there's a standard of things like don't murder. And you say, well, I certainly haven't murdered, haven't stabbed anybody in the back or shot them or anything like that. And yet Jesus said, if you've hated somebody in your heart, you've murdered. Or you say, well, I've never committed adultery. Well, if you've looked at somebody with lust, you've committed adultery. And here's the kicker. All of you have got this one, starting with me. If you've coveted something or someone... Come on now. You've dipped below the standard. And what happens is you could never measure up the standard. There's no savior there to save you from measuring up to the standard. So what's the end of the law? There's death. So what it shows you is the good and holy law or the old covenant is that you and I, we need a savior. <laughs> and that's a good thing. But it is called the ministry of death. And its glory is fading away. Look how he compares it. So that the children of Israel couldn't look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. It does say that, but it says the glory that was passing away. You see, the glory of the Old Testament or Old Covenant passes away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? You put it over on this side of the ledger. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness, watch this, exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. That's a weird way of saying the glory of the new covenant completely overshadows and surpasses and is superior to the old covenant. Now look, I got glazed looks on my eye, or on my glazed looks out there. I'm getting glazed looks, and here's the point about this. This is it, man. If you want to understand a great chapter of the Bible, this is it. And here's why. Because we still try to put ourselves under the fading glory, deathly covenant by thinking that we somehow have to measure up to God. And that has been put away forever. He could never love you as more, as much as he does at the cross. He sent his son to die for you. What more do you want? And when you count on that, you become into the family of God, and you see you're a family member. What happens to family members? They mess up, do bad stuff. They never, we still love them. They do great things. We still love them. We don't love them because or not because. We love them. 
And so that's what he's comparing here, this more glorious versus less glorious. And then watch this. Therefore, since we have such hope, what do you mean we have such hope? See, our acceptance and satisfaction and penalty all been paid, all taken care of. We're, look, watch this. We're free to have the hope that he's talking about here in the Bible, not the hope like, oh man, I make, wish I made it, or I hope I make it. That's not this hope. This is a settled expectation that all that God has said he will do, he will do, and he's going to do it in our lives because he said he's going to do it, and we're his children. We have a settled hope. We have hope. Do you know what the old covenant does? Remember it says it kills and condemns? It kills hope. You have no hope to measure up. It's a great high and holy standard, but there's no way I could ever get there. Here, he says, this new covenant is the covenant of righteousness. Now, come on, just plug in for, okay, I know. They don't play till 8.15, all right? But the new covenant, because it's all settled, the Bible tells us that when we surrender our lives to Christ, he had our sins imputed to him at the cross. He never became a sinner, but our sins were accredited to him at the cross. When we surrender our lives to him, we get back his righteousness. It becomes accredited unto us. So that when we get to heaven, when we are reminded that Jesus said, how perfect do you have to be in heaven? And then Jesus replied, oh, as perfect as your father is in heaven, you go, praise the Lord, because I have the righteousness that he, uh, that he gave to me through Jesus Christ. I'm in. All that's settled, and now I have hope. I have more hope than I could ever contain in myself. I mean, just it's bursting forth hope. You sit here and you say, masks, no masks, vaccines, no vaccines. People are mad at each other. People are not mad at each other. Do this, do that. And we're sitting here and we're just like, hope. All we got is hope and love and joy and forgiveness. And I can't wait to get out into that mix of people who are confused and just give them what they need, which is Jesus Christ, so that they won't be confused. That's hope, man. And we're free to do that now. Look at it. it. It follows. I'm giving away the story because he says we use great boldness of speech. This doctrine that we have in Jesus, the new covenant by his blood, look at this. It makes us bold. My friend back there in the left one time said, you mean gentle boldness? Yes, gentle boldness. We know who we are. Watch we know who we are, we know where we're going, and nobody or nothing on earth could do anything to us because we have eternal life. So we have great boldness of speech. The Bible tells us to speak truthfully to people with love. So we can boldly love people where you got people out on Facebook fighting on whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Who cares? I mean, I'm going to get in trouble for that, but we got Jesus. Give him Jesus. And that's what Jesus has done for us. It gives us great boldness of speech. We're healthy now. We're becoming more like Christ. We're growing in grace in the knowledge of Jesus, and so we become healthy so we can boldly, healthily, is that a word? In a healthy way, move through life. Which means people are going to look and say, why aren't you scared? Why aren't you upset? Or Why do you stay calm when people criticize your point of view? Why do you do that? How can you love people that hate you or talk about you? And you say with great boldness of speech, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's come into my life. I don't live like I want to live. I live for Jesus, and he lives through me. 
And now I do what the Lord says. And the Lord says, love my enemies. And he gives me the resource and strength then to go and love my enemies. We live with great boldness of speech. But that wasn't what Moses was like. Do you see it? Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel couldn't or wouldn't look steadily at the end of what was passing away. He was embarrassed. You getting that? He was coming down the mountain. He's checking, you know, the iPhone app that has the mirror. And he's like, what? The glory's going away. Put the veil on, man. I don't want people to see that. And that's what is happening. They were, look, couldn't look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but watch this, but their minds were blinded. These were the people of Israel. Their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Don't get frustrated with your Jewish friends if they don't get Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. The Bible tells us that there's a veil there that he can remove, not you. Of course, you're an instrument, and you love, and you share, and you pray. But by the way, if you're a Gentile and you're non-Jewish, there's a veil too. And so, if you have an unbelieving friend, or if you're unbelieving in here today, know that there's a spiritual battle for that. There's a veil there. And when the Lord lifts the veil, you're going to go just like all of us, and you've said it to me. Man, when I became a Christian, I started reading this thing, and it made sense more. It just started leaping off the page to me. And it meant something to me where previously it didn't, and the answer is, well, the veil's been lifted. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Verse 16, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, look at this, the veil is taken away. (laughs) Man, if I'm a counselor, I'm pouncing on this verse and I'm going to write a book. What does the old covenant system of living promote? Hiding. being embarrassed because I didn't measure up. I don't have the glory as much as she does or he does or they do. Put it over and make me, and then you get people that, you know, you know the people. Uh, you know, you come to church and they're shaking their hand, but they're looking at everybody else. And you're trying to say, will you pray for me? And, oh, sure, brother, I'll pray for you. But you know they're not going to pray for you. There's no authenticity at all. That's what happens there a lot of the time. But when you're living according to the Spirit, look, you're uncovered. Your life is transparent. People can see right into your soul because the Holy Spirit is pouring out. And then look at this. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, remember, I told you in Exodus 34, I think it's in verse 34. If it's not, just come up after. Uh, don't post it on Facebook. Just tell me. No, I'm kidding. Just tell me which one. I think it's Exodus 34, 34. When Moses went in, he took off the veil. One person, folks, because he was designated to go on behalf of the people of God. Why? Because they were scared and worried. They'd say the wrong thing, be the wrong thing. But he said, Moses, you just do it for us. So he'd go in and talk to him. And when he did, he'd pull off the veil. Watch this. This is what Paul's referring to right now. You know when you're free, you're free in the new covenant by the Spirit of the Lord. Because look, you don't have to hide with the Lord. You can come, as much as we can here, face to face with him and have access and communion and you've never been more free. And, and by the way, it's not just the pastor who gets to do that. It's anybody by the Spirit of the Lord. All of us get to do it. It's not just Moses. It's all of us. We have access. Wow, that's pretty spectacular. The Spirit of the, where the Lord is, uh, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So it's like this. We all get to come. We all get to have access. And... We're free from every impediment. Do you get this? We're free from every impediment that there is 
to serving God fully ablaze for him now. And that's where freedom comes. There's one other place. Remember, you're going to know the truth, the word of God, and the truth's going to set you free. Oh my goodness, the veil's been lifted, we have access, we start to uh, take in the word, the Holy Spirit starts putting it to our hearts, and then when we go out, you know, maybe we talk bad to somebody, and the, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord's like, hey, uh, hold on here. Or maybe you won't forgive somebody, and the Holy Spirit of the Lord's like, nah, you need to rethink that, you need to forgive that, or whatever, whatever it is. We live, and we're free, we're just free. And we confess our sins. God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How free are we? It's not something that we trample on or take advantage of. No, we wouldn't do that. We still want to live for the Lord and live righteously and pursue righteousness. And yet, if we do, we know that we're still free. (laughs) Amazing. But we, with all We all, with unveiled face, do you get why he's saying that now in that verse? We have access. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Why would it be in a mirror? Well, remember, we're not with him in uh, where he is right now, and yet he is here. So we sort of see... The glass, you know, half darkly or whatever. We don't see the whole thing yet, and yet we see in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You should write down Romans 8, 28, and 29. We're being uh, moved on to more Christ-likeness. And what was Christ? A servant who served people. He was laid down his life for the many. But we, with all unveiled face, you, you could, you could de- do a devotion on this for your whole 365 this year. We, with all unveiled face, beholden as a mirror the glory of the Lord. Where, where do you see the glory of the Lord, folks? Well, guess what James says? James says the word is like a mirror. James says the word is like a mirror, So what is Jesus doing? He's, or what's the Lord doing? He's revealing Jesus through his scriptures. We with all that face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed then. That's the word for butterfly thing happening. Caterpillar to butterfly, metamorphosis. That's the word. You're being transformed from glory to glory. And I want you to see something. It's no longer you just, don't, don't get mad if you like this saying, because there is this element to it. It's no longer what would Jesus do, and let's emulate it, although, yes, there's a little bit of truth to that. It's that as I behold the Lord, I become more like him. One commentator says, Well, that's all well and good. He says it way more eloquent than I'm saying it. He says, well, that's all well and good, but most American Christians don't spend much time beholding the Lord at all. Where do you behold the Lord? It's in your prayer closet at home, wherever it is that you're uninterrupted. You're on your knees. You're talking with the Lord, and you're listening to the Lord, and you're reading his scriptures, and you're pouring out your heart in praise and prayer, and then as the Lord puts these things on your heart, you move out in service to wherever the Lord has called you to serve. Look, as you do this, you're not, watch, you're not just reflecting what you're seeing, although it is a mirror, it actually says you're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, and how does it happen? It's by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, you know this, right? In Galatians, it tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is. I read through it. You might read through it and you go, oh, man, I'm in deep trouble. See, because it's a supernatural work of the Spirit 
that these things start to develop in your life, like real love and real joy and real peace and real forgiveness and real self-control and gentleness and all those things that are the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the Lord starts to produce in your life the more you behold him. (laughs) I know, it sounds like being a pastor and you're, but there's no shortcuts. You know this? I know you want to run down to the store and get all the famous books, the seven keys to victory and blah, 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 blah. And yet here it is. It's the how we are with the Lord. When we are with the Lord. How are we beholding him? Are we beholding him? And as we do that, foom, foom, foom. If this little group right here, if we would do it, and you do do it, If just the churches in Pittsburgh would really believe this by the Spirit of God, this whole region would be transformed. I'm convinced. But we've gotten away from it. We don't know much about beholding the Lord. And I'm here with you to eradicate that trend. How about we be people that search his word, really pray for one another, praise him, and move out and share the gospel with people who are hurting and dying, and some of them don't even know it, because this. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much for this morning, and... uh, Uh, you are so good to us and your word is so good and we come and we worship you because you give us the ability and resource by your spirit to live this life that you called us to. And Lord, there is no greater or higher privilege than to be your son or your daughter and to serve you and to serve your people and to the people, Lord, who are even enemies of the cross. (laughs) What a privilege. Help us to do it, Lord, in your strength and in your power. In Jesus' name.